Hello, and thank you for joining us. Our final episode of this first series of The Uptrack. The Uptrack is a podcast and a live Facebook event hosted by Wasatch Backcountry Alliance. My name is Brad Rutledge. This is the series conclusion that we're going to be talking about today. And um, we have panelists representing board members from Wasatch Backcountry Alliance tonight. So as a quick recap, we, this series is really dedicated to focusing on some transportation issues that we've all been experiencing here along the Wasatch Front. And you, the Utah Department of Transportation has received some funding to explore transportation solutions. And there's, they've been specifically focused on Little Cottonwood Canyon. Over the series, we've uh, had several guests on, including the, uh, the CWC, members representing busing solutions, the gondola solution, and finally the cog train solution. Uh, and then uh, the folks from UDOT, the Utah Department of Transportation, we had them on two weeks ago to talk about this whole process and uh, a lot of the, the options are, that are out there to solve this problem that we're all painfully aware of. So uh, with that, uh, I'd like to introduce our uh, panelists tonight. Uh, or our guests uh, for this roundtable discussion. Let me start with Todd Walton. Todd is a WBA board member and also a member of our parent uh, organization, Winter Wildlands Alliance. Todd, do you want to introduce yourself really quickly? Yeah, thanks so much, Brad. Uh, Todd Walton, board member of uh, Wasatch Backcountry Alliance, executive director of Winter Wildlands Alliance. And you're right, Winter Wildlands Alliance is the, um, I don't know if I'd call it a parent organization, but definitely... Uh, a, a grassroots partner and uh, advisor and um, really just uh, the national group for what we do locally on the Wasatch Backcountry Alliance front. And we work with over uh, roughly 40 groups, uh, similar groups all over the country, um, dealing with similar issues that we deal with in the Wasatch um, on different scales. And I'm just really stoked to be here and be having this conversation. And Love that! Love the engagement that all of our members have. It's great. Well, thanks for being here. Uh, you know, I think uh, having Todd, your perspective from a national level, seeing what other organizations are facing, and you've lived here in Park City before as well recently, and so you you do understand a lot of the issues that we're facing. So happy to have you on board tonight. Yeah, thanks and so much. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, next, we have Chris Adams, Wasatch Backcountry Alliance president. Chris, thanks for being here. Sure. Thanks for having us, Brad. <laughs> uh, and then next, uh, Danny, who's uh, also a board member, and she's been a co-host uh, with me on the last couple of episodes. Danny, thanks again for, for joining us. Yeah, thanks for hosting. And then finally, George, uh, I think, George, were you just on the first episode or re, uh, were you on another episode of the series? I think the CWC one as well. That's right. Uh, so George Vargas uh, is also a, a board member. So thanks again, George, for taking some time to, to have this live conversation with everyone. Yeah, thank you, Brad, for kind of spearheading this. Um, I'm excited to uh, dig into things tonight. Yeah, absolutely. So let's jump right to it. The format that we put together tonight is each of the board members are going to essentially represent one of the episodes. This is uh, the seventh episode. The first episode, we had a couple of board members introduce the topic and the issues that we were facing. So essentially we have five guest episodes and each 
board member is going to represent, you know, just some key insights or findings from each episode. And we're going to discuss it as we go through the series. And then at the conclusion of tonight's episode, we're gonna talk about next steps and, and where we'd like to see things go with our recommendation uh, and essentially the future of, of the Wasatch Front uh, as it relates to Big Cottonwood and Little Cottonwood. So with that, Chris Adams is gonna, I'm gonna turn it over to you uh, and you're gonna talk a little bit about that first uh, episode we had with um, CWC. Got it. So the first group, yeah, the first uh, guest on the show was Central Wasatch Commission. And just as a brief recap, Central Wasatch Commission is the organization that was formed as an outgrowth of Mountain Accord. Mountain Accord was a process that many of us participated in for several years with four systems groups trying to determine uses and best uses and ideas and how the Central Wasatch should be managed. Um, this Mountain Accord was the final um bill, not really bill, but agreement that people signed. And then the Central Wasatch Commission was really put in place to administer that. Um, on that episode, it was Blake Perez and Ralph Becker. Ralph's the executive director. Uh, Blake Perez, I'm not sure what his title is, but he's basically Ralph's deputy. And those guys are in the thick of all these discussions. And the Central Wasatch Commission, they are really conducting a much broader scale view of the central Wasatch than UDOT is. UDOT has been specifically given funds to look at Little Cottonwood. We, as we've talked about before on these past episodes, that seems troubling that they're only looking at one of the canyons, not Big Cottonwood, Mill Creek or Parley's or a valley wide system. Central Wasatch Commission is looking at the whole valley. It's great. They're looking at a bigger model. They're focusing on Little Cottonwood, of course, because that's where UDOT's going, but they're looking on a bigger scale about getting people to the canyons, about other transit solutions, about how we can get people out of their cars. Um, so that, that's good. That's good that they're doing that, um, which UDOT, and I'm not trying to jump ahead, but UDOT has said that's really outside their purview and they won't even look at big cottonwood. So it's great that Central Wasatch Commission is looking on a broader scale. Um, the biggest priority for Central Wasatch Commission, as they articulated, is passing the Central Wasatch National Conservation Recreation Area Act. And what that would do is really put a lot of protections on some lands, basically stretching from Little Cottonwood up to Parley's. It would create some new wilderness. It would put some protections on public lands. Uh, we think that's very important. There's a lot of the bill that we like. There are some issues with the bill. It leaves open what is articulated as transportation corridors. That is more than just the roads going up these canyons. That is clearly leaving an opening for interconnect of the canyons via a train or an aerial, because that would be designated as a transportation corridor. So there's a little bit of troubling language in there. There's also uh, the actual lands of where the central or where the NCRA would be is a little unclear. Particularly, there's an area in Upper Little Cottonwood that we think should be part of the NCRA, but is part of Alta Ski Area's avalanche special use permit. That there seems to be some conflict about what to do with that. And that has been an issue that we've discussed many times over the years, but we've been unable to reach resolution on. So they continue to be very committed to passing the bill. They are hoping again to introduce it sometime, I believe this year if, or next year. Um, they've just released their fifth version of it, which is crazy. Um, it actually had a hearing in 2016, but then obviously there was a change of administration and everyone anywhere than that besides a hearing. So I would say the pros of the 
Central Wasatch Commission is they're doing a central wide, central valley wide view. There's also, they're the only group who seems open to this capacity study and looking at the impact of people on the canyons. And they're doing a visitor management study, which is great. It's unclear what that's going to yield, but it's great that someone is actually looking at capacity. That's something that Wasatch Backcountry Alliance has said for years is critically important that we can't really decide what solution should be used if we don't know what it's being used for. If the goal is to pack as many people up there as possible, that's a different goal than trying to preserve the beauty of the canyon while also getting people up there. And it's very unclear. So Central Wasatch Commission is talking about that. Um, they're also very much in favor of a year-round solution, which some of the other proponents do not seem to favor. They seem to think that a seasonality exists and there should not be any uh, access or use of these modes in the summer. So Central Wasatch Commission is, is, not, is uh, looking for season, uh, year-round use, not seasonality. Um, the, the cons, the concerns I have, there's two real concerns. One is I'm, it's still unclear to me what role or impact they're really going to have on the process. And I know that they are made up of, you know, uh, mayors and council people and representatives of the Wasatch Front and Back who speak for the communities that are directly impacted. But I don't know that UDOT has to listen to them, even though I know Central Wasatch Commission says they think they will. UDOT's been charged by the legislature to build a road or put a train up or put a gondola in. And I don't think they really have to listen to what Central Wasatch Commission says, even though I understand that Central Wasatch Commission does represent a lot of people, and I hope they will. I'm a little concerned about what role they really have. Um, the other thing that's a little troubling about Central Wasatch Commission is everyone remembers a couple of weeks ago, they came out with their recommendation about putting rail up there. Yep. And then there was a meeting to talk about that. And for people who didn't listen, it was quite an interesting meeting because about an hour and a half into it, it became sort of an all out free for all where council people were saying, you know, I want this or I don't want this and we're wasting our time and I don't know where this is going. And, it seemed to sort of like fall on its face. And then Chris Robinson, who's the uh, chair of the board said, well, you know, this is really my fault. I shouldn't have really issued a directive and this was confusing and I apologize for that. And I think he was really trying to deflect the blame that all of a sudden people were pretty upset about. So I, again, I think that Central Wasatch Commission said they were gonna make a recommendation. They made it, their own board sort of out had some outcry about it and all of a sudden they were walking back from it so again you know they kind of got in their own way before they even got out the gate so i'm not you know, sure what that means for them either so yeah, uh, a clarifying know. question I, i've heard about this meeting from a few people i did not uh, attend um i'm sure it's recorded maybe i should tune in because it sounded pretty heated yeah but, um, with the cwc uh i've heard people describe that chris as a the recommendation for cog train and their plan that they submitted was a recommendation from the CWC staff and not the, the members of the CWC. Is that the correct way to position that? that? No, that, that's right. But the confusion came, well, this, this staff recommendation came out and it was positioned as the recommendation of the CWC. And for the right. first, you know, the meeting was three hours, the first hour and 15, hour and 30 minutes, it was really very perfunctory, sort of going over the alternatives. And I couldn't believe that we were just going to rehash all this. And then... I don't remember who kicked it off. It was like Mayor Wilson or Harris Sondak, Mayor of Alta. Someone started to question it and it became all out, holy hell. And that's when Chris Robinson, who's the chair of the board of CWC as opposed to the staff, basically said, well, sorry, I, I asked them to make a recommendation and maybe I've confused things. Um, yeah. So 
that, that, I mean, I would recommend listening to it. It is very, especially from, you know, go in and starting at like, you know, an hour and 20 minutes or something. You don't, you don't have to pay-per-view ultimate fighting. It sounds like you just watch this it, thing. It, yeah. it was, it was very, it was a very unusual meeting. Well, um, you know, um, I remember, you know, in that session with, with Ralph and, and Blake and, you know, they answered some really hard questions from us. Um, and one of the issues that I remember discussing with them was what is the real power of CWC? Now, they relied, and I, I really kind of bought into it, to be honest, you know, to, to all of you as we're discussing this, they represent all these mayors and they represent this diversity and their, their vote, you know, right? So UDOT has positioned it as um, CWC's vote is, is the same, is taken with the same amount of weight as what WBA says. So Wasatch Backcountry Alliance, we're going to come in with, you know, a revised, you know, recommendation, what we want, and we're all treated the same. But CWC was saying we should have more weight because we have everyone with us. But, but it sounds like they really fumbled the ball because their recommendation didn't have everyone with them. And, you know, I don't know if getting 100% consensus was realistic. At the same time, it sounds like there were a lot of folks that were upset that they were being represented that way. Yeah, no, I would agree. I, I think that it was, you know, their, their position, like I said previously, was that they should somehow carry more weight because they have all the mayors and council people, which I don't necessarily disagree with. But UDOT, like I said, they're charged by the legislature to do something. I don't know that they have to listen to anyone else. They have public comments, but they still can kind of do what they want, it seems. And yeah, I think CWC sort of fell on its face when they released that recommendation. And then it devolved into a bunch of infighting on a public meeting. Right. I'll tune into that Friday night. Uh, I'm looking for something to do. <laughs> so, um, you know, uh, Chris, uh, in your summary, um, outside of that, right, the recommendation, the things that you discussed that we, we liked, we've discussed quite a bit, is their regional view. Um, looking at a holistic regional transit plan, um, you know, it, and, and that seems to be really important in what we're looking at now, whereas uh, UDOT's scope of work is, is really limited from the 7-Eleven on, on State Road 210 up to the Summer Road. That was one of the key points that we really liked about where they're at. Were there other key points you want to bring up for discussion with the board? Um, uh, like I said, the, the fact they're open to capacity discussions, capacity. I think, is critically important. And I will say one thing that is a problem is they very clearly said that bus is not a viable solution. Very yep. clearly said buses cannot handle what needs to be handled, which again, in my opinion, goes back to the purpose and need. Yeah. You know, if they think that, you know, if, if CWC or UDOT thinks that we can conquer winter with a train or a gondola, that is a fool's errand. We know that. Winter will win every time. There will be something that happens every time. We cannot beat it. So yeah. yes, buses get stuck in the snow. I get it. You know, trains break down or derail. They do. Gondolas have problems. They do. Let's not kid ourselves that we're going to have some silver bullet solution here that's going to solve the problem. That's impossible. Well, and, and, and you bring up another really important issue with all of the different speakers that we've, we've dove in and, and, and talked through these issues. Uh, everyone has different rules or scope of work or however you want to view it that they're defining their project. So UDOT's project is limited to LCC. And what they're trying to do is remove 30% of tr cars off the roadway. And, and so when Ralph was answering that question is because he's applying different rules to that solution, right? And so 
um, UDOT, and I'll jump ahead uh, because I, I'll get to when I talk about UDOT, but they said absolutely buses can solve this problem, right? And so you have this contrast. The reason that there's a, there's, it's not really a conflict. They're just measuring the stick differently. It depends on what you're trying to say is success. What's the outcome we want? So UDOT saying based on what they're looking at, buses can do it. But I remember that moment with Ralph saying, no, buses just can't do it, period. Yep. Okay. Uh, any other thoughts or discussion or comments around CWC before we move on to? No, that, I mean, one of the pervasive issues and the other people, the other board members will address this too, is I still don't see how we're going to get people to not drive and how we're not just increasing the capacity of the Canyon with any of these solutions, because there's no talk about reducing parking. There's not really any talk about tolls. There's a little talk about paid parking, but that's not dissuading people from going to solitude. And Alta Skier yeah. is talking about rolling out a paid parking solution. And I doubt it'll discourage people going there. I don't sure. think they're going to suddenly have an empty spot. So I think we're just increasing capacity with these solutions without putting in some kind of a way to pull cars off. So I think that goes across all these modes as part of the problem. Absolutely. And, and, uh, and uh, you know, when I get to the section where I, I summarize the conversations we have with UDOT, uh, pretty clearly they're thinking that tolling will be the limiter to get people out of cars the specifics aren't there and there's no capacity plan in place, which is concerning. Um, let's move on to uh, episode three, where we focused on buses. Danny uh, is gonna give us a little summary from you know what, what we learned from that conversation. Yeah, so in the bus episode, we talked to Laura Hansen and Lauren Simpson of UTA. Um, and a quick rundown of UTA, there are currently three routes operating in the Cottonwoods. So there's two in Little Cottonwood, one in Big. Um, during peak hours, those are running or supposed to be running at 10 to 15 minute frequencies um, between both canyons. And they've had this bus system in place since the 70s. Um, they have special buses that, you know, they're shorter, they have brakes that can accommodate uh, driving up mountain roads, deployable chains with a button. Um, and with UTA being or having operated in the canyons for so long, they've been able to test certain things and make changes kind of on the fly. And in some of their surveys, um, they found that really increase in frequency is going to increase ridership. So that was a big takeaway we got um, from talking with UTA is that their measure of success is ridership and in order to increase ridership, um, they need to increase frequency. So frequency has a higher priority over um, say, like scope and number of park and rides and things like that. Um, and so in talking to them, the, the pros that I gather from this is we have the existing infrastructure to make this solution happen. Um, and so, you know, this is, solutions that use bus, they can happen now. They just are going to require more resources, which is really funding. Um, and so Lauren had said, you know, funding and congestion are the two things that are going to prevent buses from happening, which I'll kind of get into those. But there'd be some pretty easy things that would make the bus a very viable option. Um, one of those being we could get traffic escorts, you know, so that way buses have priority over personal cars. So they're able to bypass cars and get up there quicker. Um, also making this sort of system free to users would increase ridership. 
and um, those those are kind of more policy things that UTA is working on um, to make this a success. But yeah, UTA definitely they firmly believe buses could be the solution. Um, and so, and you know, another thing I found interesting with talking to UTA is we were kind of like, so what's what's your opinion? You know, buses, gondolas, trains. It seems like some folks are really trying to push gondola and train and it it's marketable. And UTA was basically like, you know, well, we are a public agency. And so we need to present these factual, you know, arguments rather than marketing our gondola or train idea. And so I thought that was something too, which, you know, myself and maybe other people don't think of as the marketability of these certain things and how a public agency might have a different, might not be able to spin their solution as well as say like a private gondola or train. Um, and so, and also with UTA, you know, their, their whole goal is systems thinking. They integrate all sort of transportation solutions across the valley. And so along those lines, they have more of an ability to connect into a bigger, a bigger grid um, if there became funding available for those sort of changes. But at this point, their main goal is frequency. Um, and so another pro of the buses is they're really flexible. You can make changes on the fly pretty easily. And they gave a good example of um, removing the ski racks a couple years back um, and that decreased the, the ridership time, you know, cause folks weren't fumbling to get their skis in and out of those racks. Um, and so it's just a lot easier to make those sort of quick changes. And um, Laura talked about how with buses that gives us the ability to grow into transit, you know? And so as we think of our growing valley, we're not going to have one solution right away. And so with buses, it can be kind of like a stepping stone and that buses will always be part of whatever solution we do decide on buses are going to need to be an integral part of that system. Um, another pro with buses and their flexibility is that it would be easier to address backcountry trailheads. Um, and so with infrastructure, um, let's see here. And then the biggest cons to the buses is that they're not gonna work unless we do something to solve the congestion issues. Um, so, you know, we could spend resources to increase bus frequency, number of buses and whatnot. But as long as we still have the problem of personal cars in the canyons, buses aren't going to be a viable solution. And so it, we need to fix out and that would be disincentivizing cars, you know, and that's kind of getting to those policy changes they were talking about that would include like tolling, paid parking or parking reservation systems, carpool only sort of things like that. And so with buses, there's some other other pieces to the puzzle that we need to make them a success, um, but they are totally a viable option. Um, one thing that we didn't get to address with UTA um, in the Uptrack series, which I think is pretty important, is uh, their take on adding more parking, um, because I know an issue with the bus is not always having park and ride spots available. And so that's one thing we did not get to talk about, which uh, could sway our decision. Um, but that's, yeah, that's kind of the rundown of our discussion with UTA. Oh, that was a good summary. You know, I, I remember a few things um, 
when, when you're describing, uh, you know, kind of key insights that you got, you gained from that episode. One, as, as we're setting up the series uh, to interview folks, it was easy to find um, people who would pr be promoting the gondola and it was really easy to find people promoting the train. Uh, but I had really had to go and shake the trees to find out who can we talk to about buses. And it really led to the point that you made, Danny, is that there's no advocate for buses. There's no one out there saying, let's do buses. It's not a sexy, exciting tourist attraction. Um, and it didn't seem like there's money to be made um, with buses or there's no representative doing that. And so I think that that was interesting to me at the beginning. And then um, your comment is exactly dead on that. Um, they're responding, representing like what's the best, you know, solution. And they weren't necessarily advocating, right, uh, for buses. Uh, but their answer was clearly that buses can work. We have challenges to fix. Um, and so anyway, I thought, I thought that was interesting that you, you highlighted that. Um, buses also seem to be, in addition to, because we represent the dispersed recreational user, buses seem to be the solution that not only can address, you know, trailheads more easily, but also a solution that we can be implementing some of these changes next year, next season, right? right. Uh, and everyone else is sit sitting around scratching the head saying, 2050? Really? Great that we have that vision. What are we doing next year? This year was a disaster. And so um, buses are the solution that, you know, I remember coming away from thinking, this is something we can implement now. What other thoughts uh, do the other board members have around, you know, what Danny highlighted? I would add that uh, there is like the, the two bus options, the road widening and the non-road widening, which are um, a little bit different uh, issues and significantly more infrastructure and expense, but maybe the efficiency um, is different looking with widening and or adding a dedicated bus lane as well. Right, and they definitely yeah. hit on having the an, a dedicated bus lane as being a, a part of that congestion solution, you know, cause then they would be able to have say an express bus lane. Um, but what I did gather is that even if we didn't add a lane, we could still with the help of uh, like traffic escorts get around traffic in other ways. Um, but they, yeah, they didn't touch too much on, you know, which way they're leaning as far as road widening or not. Um, one of the things they did say, what if they were to widen the road, um, aside from the capital cost, the travel time, if there was no road, road widening on the bus would be 54 minutes versus 36 minutes. Um, when you factor in that third lane. Um, another thing too, both of the proposals, uh, road widening or not, do include snow sheds. Um, and in both of those propos proposals, they strongly believe that uh, tolling would be a necessary management tool in order to make them effective. Yeah, how do we get people out of cars? It's really a theme that we've talked about, tolling disincentives and incentives um, to do it um, for each of the incentives or each of the transportation solutions seems like a recurring theme. So I, Brad, I think that buses are the solution that actually has the ability to make the biggest impact on vehicle use because you're using the same roadway and a gondola or a train people can just hop into this other mode and then other people can just keep rolling up the road. There's no reason not to use it. But with the bus, we've talked about the fact that you could have one-way transit for several hours a day and say, you know what? 
from seven to nine thirty in the morning and from three to five in the afternoon, it's buses only. And if you don't like it, you have to go before or go after. That's how it's going to work. And I think that would work, you know, particularly going up, going down is not, except for weather is not always as big an issue, but for going up, people will not want to wait till nine 30 or 10 o'clock to drive their little personal car up there. If they know they can get on a bus, it gets them up there at eight. Right. So I think that has the ability to actually make a difference where the other modes do not. Yeah. I think you bring up a great point, Chris. And uh, one of the clarifying points um, that I remember in this conversation around um, and I can't remember the exact term, but where you can, you, you know, if you have three lanes, you can have two lanes dedicated up with one lane dedicated to a bus. And I imagine I've, I've thought about this for years that if you're sitting in the, the red snake stopped in traffic and suddenly on a big powder day and you see a bus go by with a police escort, lots of people would be thinking, how do I get on that bus? Um, and, but one clarifying point, and I wasn't sure if you were referring to this or not, uh, I've been told that shutting downhill traffic isn't really a viable option because of emergencies and other things like that. I don't really know enough to know. Um, but if we had a third lane all the way up and you could move that lane, have two lanes dedicated up where you have traffic in one lane and a dedicated bus. And then actually we've also been stuck coming down the canyons at the end of the day, move those two lanes to downhill only. That seems like a, a viable option. Um, but good comment. Yeah. I, I, I think what you, what you say is really a viable point and it's something that's easily more easily implemented more quickly than some of the other options. Yeah. I agree with the, the double pronged approach of, of the tolling and the buses. And again, it's actionable next season, right? Um, it's not something we have to wait to improve infrastructure. That can be an ongoing thing. Um, people, people can get out of their cars and we'll, we'll have that immediate impact. Um, sure. It's not, you know, beautiful and sexy and new, but it's absolutely functional and it, and it works. We've got the history behind it. Yeah. And I think too, we didn't necessarily, or Brad, you might've mentioned this in the UDOT um, conversation, how there's many successful models of that in other places, you know, like Jackson hole and various other resort towns. So it's, it works. We just need more resources to make it happen. Yep. Okay. Final thoughts on Danny's bus section. Let's talk uh, gondola. I think Todd, you were going to talk yeah. through the insights from the gondola. Yeah. Let's, let's talk about gondolas, the big, you know, cool, sexy thing that's always brought the uh, controversy from the interconnect and whatnot. Um, you know, just because Europe does it means that we can do it better, right? Um, yeah, some interesting things came out of that. And, and Brad, I loved your comment. Uh, the, the two questions that you asked is, is you know, getting down to brass, brass tacks, right? What's the goal and what's the solution? And Chris McCandless said, we want to preserve that north side of 210 and um, we have the ability to cut off capacity or control capacity up the canyon. And that goes back to just a general theme for the, the gondola option is it's the capacity. You know, we have to have some sort of capacity study or at least understanding because no matter what, individual cars are going to go up. Um, you know, so, some of the other things that just as a, as a big picture um, to think about that, that 
you know, were highlighted to me. So we've got roughly 20 plus towers, right. That are 150 to 250 feet tall going through, you know, watersheds and things like that, the environmental impact and the disruption, you know, they can say they're as quiet as they can be, but the reality is that does impact the watersheds and it does impact wildlife in a really big way. Um, you know, unless it's dead silent, and we know that's just not reality. Additionally, now you've got people opening windows and dropping trash out. You know, one positive thing is that it can be a four season option. It can be, um, you know, if, if it's used correctly, it can be a four season option. So taking uh, cars off the road, I don't see it. Um, you've got the, the big Lakai station that's gonna go in. Um, I feel like it's this more leads to more philosophy. Um, you know, additionally, uh, another thing that stuck out to me was how you get there, right? Okay. So you either take a car or you take a bus to the station and you get on the gondola. And one of the comments was once you're on the gondola, you're there. Like, that's not really how that works. You know, you have to get from your house or a park and ride to a bus to the gondola. So you're, you're making transfers and transfers and people just... They love their cars and it's easier and it's less time consuming. You don't have to wait in line. Um, and that's, you know, that's just where we are. And another, um, you know, sort of issue that came up to it was how do you, how, how is it funded, right? You know, is it, if you have a pass uh, at Alta, does that get you onto the gondola or does it cost you 15 bucks round trip? Um, there's a lot of things that were just left up in the air as far as, how it's going to be funded and how people are actually going to be able to access it, despite the the sexy Wi-Fi and the comfortable chairs and the, you know, you can bring your coffee and hot chocolate and stuff. It's just not, it, it's not the reality of it. Um, you know, uh, Chris from the SE group um, said that the goal is to stop jamming up the road and sending people up the canyon in a controlled way, and I sort of rolled my eyes at that because again, it's a capacity thing. There's still going to be people driving up. We've got the two lane road. The parking lot's going to be full no matter what. And the SE group is a resort, you know, expansion group. Winter Wildlands Alliance is, is you know, we, we uh, see what they've done in other resorts and how they're currently working on it, how they're, you know, working with different resorts on expansion plans um, and what, you know, not picking on them specifically, but, you know, to have the SE group as part of this is kind of interesting to me too, because that's their job. Like they're all about resort expansion and they're all about, you know, making these things happen for real estate, for, you know, increased capacity, things like that. Um, so let's see here. Some other notes I had um, is that it could cause overcrowding uh, is, is this plain and simple because you can limit capacity with other options. Um, the gondola is just gonna keep spinning and cars are gonna still drive up unless you limit the car use. It's the same amount of people going up in the cars and then you're adding more capacity up there. Uh, those were some of the challenges. And you know, back, back to, to one question I think uh, Chris had was, you know, what does it really look like? And the, the answer was, well, look at the Snowbird tram, look at those towers. So if you can envision that going up Little Cottonwood, um, both aerially and, and 
footprint wise, that's what we're kind of looking at. And that just doesn't seem like a good solution. One of the biggest things to me, um, which was big red flag is just because you can, doesn't mean you should. And that goes straight into um, opening the door to get over to big, right? So great. If you do put the, the gondola straight up Little Cottonwood Canyon, but then you want to do a tram up and over to big to alleviate that traffic. So you, you're alleviating the traffic up little, but you can access big. Immediately, you're starting to talk about interconnect again. You're, you're just opening that door of, of, of that, that access to big cottonwood and access, you know, back down the canyon. It's just a, it, to me, it's a little bit of a slippery slope. Um, so those were some of the big takeaways uh, that, that I had. Um, and once again, the, one of the biggest ones is there's no capacity study. We have no idea how many parking lots are there, how many people it can actually hold, what are the resorts, uh, special use permits saying the capacity is there's a, there's way too many unknowns. Yeah. You know, top, top, thank you. I, I think you hit on a couple of themes that are really concerning despite, you know, which solution we're looking at is that we're really, a, we've been avoiding this capacity issue and, you know, we can talk about and speculate, I guess, a little bit about why that is, but it, it does feel like an interconnect. And, and I just want to say for, all of our audience, we've surveyed our representatives. You know, so these are, you know, people who like to go recreate in, in the winter, you know, and go hike up trails and go backcountry skiing and split boarding in the winter uh, and get up to the top and, 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 you know, either ski down, snowboard down, snowshoe down, what have you. Um, it's human power. It's all human powered. When we survey our members, the issue that they're most concerned about and it's by far and above more important to them than anything else is interconnect. People are really concerned about connecting these resorts, creating this mega resort amusement park uh, that, that we, we fear, you know, will ruin the Wasatch. And so, um, you know, the gondola uh, solution wasn't a standalone in, in sort of not addressing that big issue. We should be careful about what we build if we haven't thought through the, you know, what this might turn into, what the consequences may be of it. Um, I wanted to ask you, Todd, really quick, because when, I, when I've looked at the gondola, um, you'd mentioned the Wi-Fi and you can sit back and big windows, it's beautiful. And they did promote this as a tourist attraction. It's a luxurious um, model, right? And you know, the ride up there would be unique and really cool and that kind of thing. Um, outside of that though, uh, you hit on travel times, you know, what, what's the whole experience look like? There's multiple transfers from your house to your car, from your car to a bus, to the parking station, to the gondola, right? And mm -hmm. it's inconvenient. You hit on a lot of these things. Were there some things um, in the solution that, um, and to the whole board actually, that, that you guys liked about it? I kind of hit on, you know, the full windows and the experience and all that kind of stuff that they're selling. We're not selling a tourist attraction though. I mean, I think we got to get back to the goal, what we're trying to do. We're trying to alleviate traffic problems, but that's definitely something that's a, you know, that, that people like about this. Are there other things about the gondola um, that are pros that, that we could talk about? Uh, 
I don't um, think it's crickets. a pro, but uh, I'll just jump back. In. <laughs> I'll just jump back in, and and you nailed it. I mean, Wasatch Backcountry Alliance and Winter Wildlands Alliance. I mean, we're all stewards, advocates, advocates, and you know, policy workers to to maintain that human powered experience in those quiet winter landscapes. Um, this really doesn't do a whole lot for it. Additionally. Um, we have to look at the options as what does it do for our organization? And it really doesn't because, you know, where it stops, um, you, you're still challenged to travel a little bit more, uh, even at the top of, of Alta, like you've still got a boogie on up to Grizzly or you've still got to, you know, get to where you're going. And it's just, you know, let's face it, if you're going to get up at seven o'clock in the morning, you're going to be in a car anyway why do five transfers and get there or even two transfers um then you know and and chris alluded to it as well no matter what you know quote unquote solution there is there's going to be drawbacks what if there's too much wind what if there's too much snow what if the cable comes off the wheel you know then you yeah. just delayed it and people are going to jump in their car and it's going to be misery anyway but I, i'll turn it over to everybody else on the call uh, any other thoughts or questions, comments around the gondola? Um... So, yeah, I, I mean, I, my, my comment is this, is that I understand that gondolas work as a means of transportation. You see them in South America, for example, going from the city up into the hills to help bring people to and from their homes to where they work. But the solution that's being proposed here is only to benefit these two private ski areas. And it's going to be visually very intrusive. I mean, as Todd said, Envision the snowbird style tower, which is sort of like an erector set type tower. Now envision that thing is 250 feet tall. Okay. And envision there's like 20 of these things go up the canyon. Not everyone is that tall, but they're enormous. Okay. It, it, if you don't think that has some kind of an impact, I don't know what you do think, but I think that's a problem. Right. And I also think that they've made it very clear that it is not going to stop even at somewhere as popular as white pine. And white pine is a problem in Little Cottonwood. It's got tons of cars on the road all the time. It's dangerous to pull out of there all the time. So the fact that it wouldn't even stop at an, at an identified, very popular winter and summer location because, it's, because it involves like tower height issues. I mean, again, I think that's just short-sighted thinking that you need to be thinking about the bigger solution. And I understand well, I don't really understand, but I see what UDOT is doing is they're trying to just do this 30% and worrying about mobility. But I think that's the wrong lens to be looking through. I think we need to be looking at getting people off their, out of their cars onto a viable solution that will get them to where they're trying to go. And look, it's not going to get everyone to where they're trying to go all the time, but they could do a lot more with it than they're proposing right now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, to that point, there's tools in place or we have tools uh, uh, in, in concepts of available to us now that could have an impact now. Um, okay, um, George, you're up. Yeah, thanks. Um, yeah, I'll cover the rail section. You know, rail's been talked about in the Wasatch for a long time. And uh, we had uh, Mike Allegra on, uh, who represented Stadler, the rail company. Um, and then uh, Newell Jensen, a civil engineer, with a lot of experience in the canyon and I think uh, is involved in alignments and technical issues. So I'll just kind of jump through the pros and the cons and some controversial issues. So um, 
some things that uh, on the pro side are uh, connectivity. So the ability to connect to uh, our established rail system in the Valley already is kind of an attractive consideration, I think. Um, you have the tracks lines running out to the airport and downtown and the, the hub centers are sort of in place already on some level. So that ability to connect those sites to the canyon um, and get people out of their cars seems like a plausible concept uh, to consider. Uh, expandability, so as uh, the use goes up, uh, you could add rail cars to, uh, you wouldn't have to lay new infrastructure per se, you can just add train cars um, and frequency uh, to assist with that, uh, making a certain number of people travel per hour. Um, let's see, there's potential whistle stops. Uh, they mentioned Gate Buttress and Lisa Falls and Tanner Flat and White Pine as potential whistle stops for dispersed users, which is another attractive uh, possibility. But I think in all practicality, stops in the wintertime are uh, all, uh, when people are, are, are pining to get up to Alta and Snowbird, the likelihood of those stops being employed are questionable, I think. In the off-season months, a different story. Um, there's a mention of the life cycle costs associated with the rail. It has this big upfront cost, but as a reasonable life cycle because the rail cars last a long time and the maintenance maybe isn't quite as much and so forth. So that over time, it sort of pays for itself uh, more so than the other modes is uh, part of the discussion. Um, uh, there is mention that uh, state, they mentioned in their conversation that the stated goal is to make um, that mode of transport more desirable um, actually than the automobile, which I found interesting. Um, and I, I think that there's some uh, reason to, to, to think that way. And I can see how they kind of got there, but they, they sort of admitted that a policy change would be necessary. And we're getting back to the purpose and need and um, a policy change on this scale and our current political climate, I think, is highly unlikely to get people out of cars. Um, they mentioned that uh, in 10 years, maybe you could get 50% of the people out of their cars, and by 20 years, 90%. I just don't quite understand how you disincentivize the automobile that much unless you make it financially infeasible to go up in your car. Um, and then sort of on the con side, uh, there's a footprint impact with the rails. Um, you know, it's, it, it's significant, whether it's the south or north side alignment. Um, I have, uh, there's concerns over like rail crossing, like um, uh, Josh Ventura mentioned from UDOT, like you're not supposed to play on the train tracks. Isn't that what your parents always taught you? And so there's issues of being near that train track. Um, and that sort of not only gets to our mobility crossing that uh, corridor, which we often do in whichever season. Um, but then, yeah, where are you going to be able to be allowed to cross? And what does wildlife uh, do in that setting as well? It could be quite a barrier. And um, Snow removal next to the road down low in the canyon became an issue. And they were talking about putting up these three foot tall Jersey barriers, big cement walls, so to speak. So cars or buses or what have you don't sort of crash into it. And then Having to deal with the snow removal sounds challenging uh, with all those. And then the impact in the lower canyon with climbing sites was 
vague. I think that there could be significantly more impact than sort of was mentioned. Um, as I alluded to, there's this controversy a little bit between uh, the expense that the UDOT is quoting and then uh, Stadler and CWC are sort of mentioning. And it's, it's basically, you know, a billion dollars versus a half a billion dollars somewhere in there. And so a lot of that kind of may royal down to this, this talk of the double track versus the single track. And UDOT is sort of emphasizing that it has to be double track for, um, for flow purposes. So one train doesn't get stuck behind another and you can kind of keep things rolling along. And some of that um, money difference also has to do with UDOT emphasize that they are only looking at the north alignment, which would be a bigger in, uh, uh, intrusion, if you will, into the embankment on that side of the road. But they are also talking about snowsheds um, the entire time. And there's a little bit of talk like how far that snowshed, whether it comes over the road or just the, the um, rail tunnel. Um, and then, uh, yeah, I, th I think those are sort of the main issues that are uh, against the rail. And then, um, you know, there's a lot of talk of comparing it to Zermatt and I'll just throw it out there that the, the Zermatt model, although it kind of on its face might look similar, there's a lot of differences between where the population centers are and how many people use that mode of transit on a daily basis is a little bit different. So with that, um, we should talk some more about things. Yeah, good summary. Um, you know, one thing that stood out to me during um, the rail trans um, the the rail episode was a slide that they put up there that showed visually um, what it would look like at the top of Little Cottonwood Canyon with the amount of buses and the amount uh, with the uh, gondola and then the train. It was this visual impact slide that, you know, of course it was designed to persuade us that the train just looks fantastic. And, you know, when we look at buses, you know, it's uh, six buses per hour to each resort, buses going up and down every couple minutes. And um, the gondola has this, um, you know, this, this visual, just you just can see it, you know, the height of it and everything else. And I, I do remember that being a uh, in, an impactful slide that when I looked at it, that I thought, yeah, the, you know, the train, you know, that looks nicer than these other ones. Um, that was the, the, you know, the one addition I wanted to, to throw in when, you know, when we were having that conversation. Was that um, before or after you found out there was going to be a three to five foot high pony wall all the way along it? <laughs> that was, uh, you're right. You know, I mean, talk, talk about that, right? The, the, the impacts to visually, but also the impacts to access. Well, yeah, I mean, so, I, I mean, I, and, and a lot of this was explored in the discussion with UDOT as well. So it kind of crosses into, into that section, but there's a real issue with what George said is that if it's on the North side, that's an incredibly popular world-class climbing area. I mean, it's not just like rarely visited. It's packed with people all the time who come to Utah specifically to climb in Big Little Cottonwood Canyon, okay? We all know this. It's world-class climbing there, right? So if they're going to put a train on the north side, first of all, a lot of that climbing is bouldering. That's right by the road. I don't see how that doesn't just get, get destroyed or very largely impacted. But even if it doesn't, all the stuff at the gate buttress and farther up the canyon that is obviously not right at the road, 
to George's point, you have to be crossing the train tracks. And there was talk about having a few access points. They're going to be, you know, several hundred yards, if not a mile or two apart. So where's the parking for that going to be? How are we going to get to that? Is the train going to stop there? I mean, there's talk about whistle stops. Is it going to plan to stop there? Or is it even going to run in the summer? Because UDOT would tell you it's not going to run in the summer anyway. So then, you know, it, ju it just starts to beg the question of how's it going to, how's it going to work with people trying to cross the tracks uh, on the south side of the road? There's a huge amount of climbing and skiing over there. And there's some skiing obviously on the north side with Tanners and Lisa Falls and farther up, but down farther, there's a huge amount of people crossing to go skiing too. So I think there's a real issue with that, right? Mm -hmm. About how that is going to be, is going to work in reality for the train. Good comments. Yeah, you know, the access one, um, I had mixed answers on how the train solution would, would handle access meaning people wanting to access those climbing areas or just any of those trailheads, um, you know, from, you know, it, this would be easily crossable to there's access points in which you could cross it. So that to me, I didn't have clarity on what that solution would look like with the rail. Um, other comments on rail? One of the things, uh, George, were you gonna say something? I, I don't want to. No, cut you. I'm good. Okay. Um, well, uh, thank you for that. I am actually going to share uh, my screen really quick. Um, UDOT has a just a ton of really great resources, and um, I did want to put up. Um, are you able to? Let me see here. Uh, trying to share this. Yeah, no, that that's good. There's been questions about the travel time. This is good. Okay. Yep. So, um, one one of the one of the things I do want to show, um, discuss here as we transition into um, our conversation with UDOT, which was two weeks ago. Um, if we look at, uh, let's just say travel time, the way that this sheet works, and this is available on UDOT's website, Little Cottonwood. I don't remember the whole website. You can go uh, uh, find it on their website and on UDOT's website. But we have these uh, uh, different solutions here. If you can see my mouse moving, but we have enhanced bus at the top enhanced bus with roadway widening, the gondola, the Lakai gondola, there's two gondola options, and then finally the Lakai cog rail. Uh, and I think the average person uh, per person travel time is really interesting to look at. Uh, if we start with the first bus option, which is that without road widening, uh, it's 46 minutes. But the fastest time up here of any of the solutions is the enhanced bus with roadway widening. Uh, roadway <laughs> widening. Uh, and then as we get down further with the gondola, option one is 46 minutes. Uh, it looks like, um, you know, they have two options, you know, between 43 and 45 minutes for the option two for the like Kai gondola. And then finally for the cog rail, it's between 43 and 45 minutes. Now time is really a, an important factor here. And I didn't exactly understand it until I tuned into one of um, UDOT's podcasts. They're doing podcasts on this as well. And they factored in time of, of driving to the parking lot and moving to, you know, all the drive time, um, all the time that's going to be involved in taking this solution. And one of the reasons that this enhanced bus with roadway widening, roadway widening is the lowest and the fastest time, it's the lowest amount of time impact is that you get on a bus and go to your destination. The other solutions are requiring transfer points. 
And uh, as we've discussed as a board, when you're, you've got a family and you're trying to get up to the resorts, you know, limiting that is really important too. Um, it's not only just minutes, but it's also screaming kids and headaches and all this kind of stuff. So I thought that was important. The other thing I wanted to highlight, um, and this, by the way, everyone on the panel, please, you know, throw in some questions or comments around this, because I think this is such a great piece to look at, um, are the capital costs. And then they all actually also have estimates for winter operating um, and maintenance costs. So when we start looking at things, um, let's start right with the train at $1.05 billion. And the train advocates were saying that they have solutions that are less than that. UDOT is, as George highlighted accurately, promoting the more expensive version. They're only looking at the north side alignment of the north side of the road, double rails for reliability and, um, and some other factors, snow sheds and things like that that are bumping that up. But this is, their, the, this is the solution that they're looking at. And if you compare that to either of the bus solutions, it's quite a big contrast. Any comments on the costs or the travel time that I wanted to highlight here? Yeah, I think those are, are great points. And especially when you take into consideration, you know, the implementation time, like none of that is really mentioned. So if you think about the realistic implementation time, that first bus option, like that could happen next season and then transition into, you know, an enhanced bus option, like to me, that's just, you know, it doesn't take into consideration the ramp up time. Right. That, you know, so you're talking about time to implement the solution. Correct, mm -hmm. Todd? Yeah, I think that I agree with Todd. I think there's two points here. I think that the number of seat transfers is a huge issue. And that if you're trying to encourage people to use a mode of transportation, telling them they have to load up and change three times in each direction. Remember, you have to go there and go back. That's going to be discouraging. That if you're saying, look, I just want to get on you know, the bus at, you know, the Dan's on foothill and it'll take me all the way up there and I can just chill out and relax. That's okay. But if I have to drive my car to the gravel pit and then get on a bus, so I have to put all my stuff on, move all my stuff. If I've got children, deal with my children, move over to a bus, get on the bus, ride that for 10 minutes, then get onto a gondola or a train. I'm probably not going to do that. That becomes, and, and do that both ways, especially when I'm going to go home too. Like I'm probably not going to do that. So I think that's a, I think that's a big deal. That's not really being pointed out. And I think the cost is really interesting because one of the things that you hear about the buses is that, oh, there's so much more to operate. Oh, you have to have a driver for each bus as opposed to the gondola or train. Well, if you looked at that chart, it was like 2 million bucks more per year. Okay. So will it over time, will that 500, you know, the, the bus, even with an expanded lane was like 450 million. Okay. Compare that to $5 billion. That's a, you know, excuse me, $1 billion. That's $500 million less, okay? To make up that $8.3 million to $6.3 million a year in operating and management costs, you got a long time to, to before that suddenly becomes a problem. At which point, I think we're gonna have much bigger problems on our hands in terms of what's happening in the canyons and the valley in general, right? We're talking decades in the future. Right. So I think that's kind of a throwaway argument. I think the problem, UTA knows it too. They've got a marketing problem. Buses aren't sexy. No one thinks taking the Greyhound cross country is, you know, most people don't think taking the Greyhound cross country is particularly cool, most. right? Maybe some people do, but, you know, most people aren't like, Yahoo, I get to ride the Hound from here to, you know, Phoenix. Yay. No, you don't want to do that. You'd rather fly, right? 
So that's the problem is that buses have a huge image problem. And part of the image that people continue to show is the bus stuck in traffic, right? And let's be clear. No one who's advocating the bus is suggesting the bus to just get in line with every other car. That is not what is being proposed. What's being proposed is some other solution that would allow buses to move in a priority way or a dedicated lane or both so right. that they could solve the problem. So, you know, people keep saying, oh, but buses get stuck. Yeah, no, we get it. We know. But that's why I keep saying that buses are the one type of transport that I think could actually get people out of their cars and onto the bus as opposed to the train or the gondola, which has no real incentive to get you off unless it's prohibitively expensive to park or drive up. Couple comments. Um, first of all, there's a new Hallmark movie coming out that's called Ride the Bus. It's a romantic movie coming out, Chris. I'm surprised you don't know about this. Um, no, I, I agree. You know, it gets back to the heart of. Uh, right. I should get out more. That uh, <laughs> that um, buses aren't sexy. We haven't had a proponent selling buses on this, which is just an interesting side note. Let me get into you, Dot. We we've, we've gone a, about ten. 10 to 12 minutes over on each of these episodes. And I want to go through a summary of our conversation with UDOT. Now, remember UDOT, Utah Department of Transportation. Chris, you've said it many times. They're in the business of doing what? Oh, they're all about mobility and efficiency. That's all they're about. But uh, I've heard you say like- Oh, and building roads. roads. They like to build roads too. Or build things. They like to build things. So I I, I wanted to start with that because um, uh, I think UDOT, has a, a limited scope of work that when we got through this episode um, and Danny and I were on this, we really tried to talk about the holistic view. Uh, what's the view for the Wasatch? What's the view for Wasatch Boulevard? You know, how does this all work together? And um, it's a really unique situation in which UDOT has allocated money to study one canyon that impacts the rest of the whole valley. And I'm very confident that UDOT can be successful in the limited scope of work that they've identified and defined, but it's really concerning um, that we haven't addressed a lot of really core issues that have been present throughout all of these discussions. What is the capacity of the canyon and what is it that we want it to be? So the answers that I hear uh, and that I heard from from UDOT were that Tolling is a part of, of this, and we're, we're going to have this varied tolling to control traffic going up and, and serve as a disincentive. Um, but there's no plan in place to say, what is the capacity? How are we going to disincentivize cars? Um, and from all of the conversations that I've had, uh, essentially, there's not a 100% commitment to this, but most people expect all the existing parking spots are going to continue to be taken. And we're going to be having these implementing these transportation solutions that are going to be sending a thousand plus people per hour up the canyon, in addition to being completely at their current capacity levels today. Um, and Todd, I thought you had a great phrase earlier when you described more leads to more, right? We have to really step back and say, what is it we're trying to accomplish? And I saw uh, one of our viewers on Facebook said, what is the goal of what we're trying to do here? And I actually believe that we should get the powers that be in the room to say, what is the goal? And I think if we really had to clearly identify that and include capacity, we can't hide behind, I'd say several of our conversations, we had people on the Cograil um, discussion with, with Mike Allegra, 
great, nice guy. But I heard him punt the ball several times and say, that's a, a legislative decision. That's this department's decision. And what Josh Van Jura said with UDOT uh, is that it's the Forest Service decision to do a carrying capacity to identify what is the capacity that we want up there. And no one's doing it. Um, and so without that data point, how are we going to use tolling to control the amount of people that go up there and who's making that decision? I don't really have a lot of confidence that that's going to turn out the way we want it. There's definitely going to be more forces that want more people buying tickets and buying hot dogs and Indian food and whatever else you can get at the resorts, right? Um, let me highlight a couple of other key uh, points from our conversations with UDOT. Uh, one of the concerns that we had were was around um, comments during the first phase of this, uh, this exercise related to the environmental impact statement. Um, lots of people have brought up to our attention that where do the comments come from? And are we looking at zip codes? And are the comments from a tourist that comes and skis at Alta once a year, are those weighted equally with uh, the same weight as someone who lives in Cottonwood Heights? And I thought it was really insightful that um, um, Vince uh, Izzo from, uh, that, was, that was on the uh, conversation with us, it was a good educational moment to say that the comments aren't designed for voting. And if we had you know, more people comment that they love the gondola, that the gondola is gonna win. And to be honest, I didn't really know how comments um, were used in this kind of situation. His comment was um, comments in the process are to help uh, the folks running the environmental impact statement, the EIS, identify areas, something that they missed, something they hadn't thought of that they need to take into consideration. And so the power of those comments um, isn't copying and pasting something that Alta sent out to their, their, their user base. Um, they see those and those are all in some ways written off, but they're looking for and trying to identify um, things that they missed in their analysis. So I thought that was useful. Um, there, there was a quote from um, Josh Van Jura, who's the, leading this effort for UDOT, um, essentially said that, you know, I think Danny, you posed the, a great question at the beginning and said, what about Big Cottonwood Canyon? And the, the answer, um, you know, from UDOT was, it's just, it's too much to handle for us to be looking at Big Cottonwood Canyon and Little Cottonwood Canyon. And I guess when I sit back and look at you know, what they're trying to do with Little Cottonwood Canyon and it's an enormous project and an enormous problem. And I understand where he's coming from, but how can we afford to not look at Big Cottonwood Canyon at that same, at that same time? I mean, I think the real concern that, that I've, I've come away from with all of this, you know, ending that conversation with our last guest of UDOT is we don't have, you know, there's concern that there's not a regional vision on what we're doing. How does what we do in Little Cottonwood Canyon impact the rest of the Wasatch, Wasatch Boulevard, et cetera? Um, uh, another really interesting insight from that conversation, you know, our first guest was Ralph Becker with CWC and he highlighted that buses could not solve the solution, which we talked about earlier. And Josh Vanjura from UDOT said, absolutely buses can solve the solution. Um, and this gets back to the math. How are we measuring it? What are our goals? So Ralph's goals, and I'm making some assumptions, but I think they're right, is he's envisioning a solution that can bring 90% of all people up Little Cottonwood Canyon. Buses can't do that. 
Josh is measuring it by removing 30% of the traffic off of the roadways during those peak hours. Buses absolutely can do that. Um, I don't know what the insight is from that because we're still not agreeing on what the goals are. Um, but, you know, uh, let's see, you know, another uh, insight I think from you, Dot, or, you know, is that we talked a lot about the impacts to Wasatch Boulevard and a lot of the, um, the solutions, uh, if not all of them, are really implementing changes to Wasatch Boulevard. And there's a lot of concern that's gonna make Wasatch Boulevard a freeway, a freeway like um, here along the Wasatch Front, like that Van Winkle stretch that turns into, um, what is that, Highland Drive, um, or even um, like a Bangor Highway where really there's, there's lots of lanes and people are, are gonna be driving fast, even with, with lower speed limits. There's a lot of people concerned about that. Um, you know, and you know, I, I think that uh, a, a key takeaway I had from, um, you know, speaking with you, Dot, is it's a it's a really complicated solution. Um, the more that we've learned going through this, the more like I I'm scratching my head saying, you know, who's who's making the big decisions? Um, there is an organization we haven't really um, gone deep on, you know, to understand their role in this. It's the Wasatch Front Regional Council. And um, we're just starting to look at them a little bit more closely, but you know, we learned in this session that the uh, WFRC does have a regional plan. I'm not sure that they have power to make decisions, um, but they've made recommendations and they're looking at things from a regional standpoint like CWC did, Chris, that you highlighted when you opened up. Um, Danny, did you have any other kind of big takeaways yeah, I would I would say too through it all. Um, one of the eye-opening things was just how many unanswered questions there still still are, specifically in regards to the gondola and train um, proposals. You know, like who's going to run it? What's the cost going to be? You know, just these questions which seem absolutely crazy not to have answers for when we're talking about you know the cost of the projects, the time to implement all those sort of things. And so that was, yeah, very eye-opening just to say, you know, you, you want us to choose a solution, but we don't have answers to a lot of big questions. So that's, yeah, another thing to think about. And maybe another reason why buses make more sense because we know how those can work. That's a good point. Um, you know, we are, you know, we're, we're a little bit over our time. This is about what we've gone. I did want to highlight a theme. There were, um, I guess across this whole process as we're evaluating everything, um, there are a couple themes that we've hit on pretty strongly. One is carrying capacity. Um, how can we build a solution that can get so many people up the canyon when we haven't defined what do we want this to look like in the end? What is the carrying capacity? What do we want that to look like? I understand we can implement tolling and disincentives, but without having that answer, it seems like a big concern. Um, Danny, to your point, unanswered question for sure. Um, you know, the holistic regional plan, how does this all work together versus just looking at Little Cottonwood Canyon is a, a real concern. Um, the unintended consequences of what we build. So again, I mentioned, I, I have confidence UDOT could be successful building what they've defined, but is the end result what we want? People are really concerned about overcrowding at the resorts overcrowding in the back country. And, um, you know, I think that's just goes into that category. Danny, you highlighted so well as unanswered questions. Um, when we don't clearly define what it is we're trying to accomplish, but we limit it to this little piece 
you know, piece of the pie. It's really concerning. Um, timing. So timing to implement a solution is still, you know, up in the air. How quickly can we be making changes now? And then I want to end and I'm going to turn it over to the board to kind of have some final conversation around this. We got to think about dispersed users who are going to trailheads more so than the resorts and, you know, um, underlying, you know, thinking about how does this impact their experience going up there? What I've heard uh, is that uh, because most of the people are going to resorts, these solutions are looking at delivering people to two stops, Alta and Snowbird, um, which means um, in theory, there's less cars going up because they're taking these other mass transit uh, solutions. Um, but what's the impact to the dispersed community? Uh, so to the board, what, what questions did I miss? Um, or what, what kind of final thoughts do y'all want to have as, as we go to the next phase of talking about this? I think you did a great job there, Brad. I mean, I think the reality is, is that no one said this was easy, right? No one said this was going to yield a solution that we could all say, oh yeah, that's perfect. I mean, that's obvious, right? There's a huge host of problems. It's a unique situation. It's very complex. We all know that. That's why nothing's been done for 30 years. But at the same time, I will say it's a little frustrating that the group that's leading this charge is not looking at the bigger picture and that they are looking at it through such a narrow lens and that they're looking at doing something so minimal in terms of getting 30% of the cars off the road. It just seems like we're going to spend hundreds of millions or a billion dollars on a solution that's just going part of the way. And it doesn't even achieve all the goals that they're trying to get to, right? So I find that frustrating. And the whole process just seems to have so many problems. And look, the reality is UDOT is going to come down with a final, or excuse me, a revised draft EIS sometime in June, they told us. And they're going to open for public comment. I'm super discouraged about that comment that Vince made, if that's true. You know, my idea was that I understand that submitting a copy and paste type comment is kind of worthless, that you need to put some thought into it. But if you're putting some thought into it, I would hope they're not just looking at it to see if you've discovered something they haven't. I mean, look, for God's sake, I'm just Joe Blow public guy. I'm not some pro designer developer. Like I'm just trying to tell you what really happens on the ground, how the world really works down here, how I'm trying to actually use it. You're the transit specialist who we've hired to do this, right? And I say we, we are the public. So to think that we're going to come up with some unique solution that you haven't thought of, that strikes me as sort of a hollow statement. And I don't see how that could be. Um, and I've heard opposite from Forest Service. They say, look, if we hear a lot of people voicing articulately why they do or don't like something, we listen to that. We don't expect them to solve the problem. We expect them to, to articulate a problem. And we listen to that. We don't yeah. like the, you know, the copy and paste one, but we will listen. So I find that a little you know, troubling. And maybe I misunderstood what Vince said. Um, you know, I would hope so. I'd love to hear a clarifying statement about Todd, that, that, that um, that was wrong. Uh, do you have any other, you know, Todd, I, I know you have more of a national perspective on that. Uh, yeah. that this is just, you know, the, what we're hearing. We're, you know, I'm not an expert on it. Um, yeah. You, on kind of the role of comments and, you know, how, how can we, you know, the, the underlying theme is how can we be persuasive, but like, what is the role of comments and how, how does that fit into it as your understanding? Comments are important, you know, and, the, and they're, you know, they are sort of scaled like Chris is alluding to. Um, they're taken very seriously uh, by the Forest Service. Um, they're very worthwhile. Uh, the cut and paste ones, 
they do, you know, when you see a hundred, 200, 300 of them, um, they just sort of get put in a pile. Like, yeah, yeah, we get it. You know? Yeah. We understand that, but they do read it. And a lot of them are very valuable, especially if they are thought out and meaningful. So as, as Wasatch Backcountry Alliance and as Winter Wildlands Alliance, you know, we can craft some sort of suggestion to say, this is, this is what's going to move the needle. Um, you know, we can engage on that level. And I think that's an important piece is, you know, we may not have the solution, but at least we have collaborated. We've, we've worked with our community and our constituents and stakeholders. We've worked with the powers that be, and we can present that in an intelligent way that they will listen to without question. Thanks for that insight. Yeah. Um, George, Danny, any kind of final thoughts on um, just the key issues that, you know, that have, you know, kind of run between, you know, all of these solutions we're evaluating? Yeah, I would sort of uh, think about a couple of things. We talked about short-term solutions and how much time it takes to implement these things. I'm sort of still at a loss, like why we haven't implemented a toll already to help raise revenue and what effect that would have for car traffic and bus use and all those things. So it's pretty shocking to me that there are easy options out there that we're sort of glossing over pretty quickly for unclear reasons at this time. And let's just never forget that like these unique locations that we're talking about are a watershed and our drinking water. And um, that is a primary uh, uh purpose behind these canyons and the livelihood and the safety of the surrounding communities. So let's carefully analyze uh, that and never forget that important component to these solutions. That's a great point. Yeah, you know, the watershed, I know in a lot of um, conversations around this, that's the leading topic. I'm so happy you brought that up because uh, everyone who lives here depends on the, the clean water that comes from those canyons. Um, really, really important. And your other point of, you know, what can we do now? I think everyone's wondering that. They have been implementing some solutions. I've got to give some cred to UDOT for some of the things that they have been doing. It's an indicator to us, I guess, to me that we could do more now that doesn't have to be a billion dollars or half a billion dollars, right? We, 2050 is great. We need to think for the future, but what about next season? You know, um, Danny, any, um, any kind of final thoughts on main issues or not that I can think of. I think, yeah, we've covered a lot of, a lot of good ones. Awesome. Um, well, with that, so we are, we would like to open this up to, you know, members of the Wasatch Backcountry Alliance, and we're going to promote this out via email, social media, and we are encouraging people to communicate with us um, questions that you might have. And we try to respond to questions on the Facebook live event tonight. Um, concerns that you might have, or if there's a preference um, that you like, you know, uh, ideas, concepts. We want to use the next couple of weeks to, now that we've presented everything that we've been exposed to in these conversations, we want to hear from you. Uh, and we'll include that in our outreach, but you can send us an email for simplicity, info at wasatchbackcountryalliance.org. Please send us your thoughts um, and we, we talked about maybe getting a poll up on, you know, our Facebook page or some other things. We'll, we'll communicate to, to people, um, how to do that, but we want to hear from you. This is really, really important. Um, and we've committed to in the next couple of weeks, 
Um, I'm not going to commit to just a season, but in the next couple of weeks, we are going to take those comments that we receive from our membership and we're going to come up with um, our preferred recommended solution. And we're going to present that to you, Dot, and we're going to publish it online. And so your involvement is really important in terms of your comment. If there's a comment in there that makes sense, or we see a lot of comments that are along this line, we are going to pay attention to it um, in that way. And, and Danny's developed a scorecard to help us as we talk through this, because it's really complicated. So um, with that, to the rest of the board, did I miss anything? Awesome. Uh, we've run a little bit over, but this is, uh, this is our final episode of this series. Our hope is that we can, uh, we'll have another series, another topic, and we'll continue doing podcasts like this as we move forward. But uh, for everyone who attended tonight, thank you for all the uh, roundtables um, participants. Thanks, you guys. It was really insightful. Thanks for taking the time to prep and uh, present you know, each of those topics. And everyone who tuned in, really appreciate it. We'll, um, we'll be in touch. Watch Watch for um, watch our website or an email uh, or send us emails so we can we can learn what you guys think. Thanks so much. Have a good night.